0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, October 3rd, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post national security correspondent Greg Miller discusses his new book, The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Miller is joined live on stage by Washington Post reporters Ellen Nakashima and Craig Timberg, who help provide a behind-the-scenes look at the history of Russia's interference in the 2016 election. Let's listen.
1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Washington Post. I'm Fred Ryan Publisher. Uh, We're delighted to have you here today for the launch of Greg Miller's powerful new book, The Apprentice. The Apprentice was released just yesterday, and it could not be more timely. Midterm elections are only weeks away, and millions of Americans are wondering whether the lessons of 2016 will be remembered. The events of two years ago show how a hostile foreign power exploiting our technology and our culture of open exchange can sabotage the democratic institutions that have been at the core of our country for 240-plus years. Russia's meddling in our election is one of the most compelling stories of our time. Its ongoing implications continue to dominate daily headlines, fueling stories about criminal investigations, backdoor diplomacy, and White House intrigue. Given the speed in which these stories move in today's digital news cycle, It can be difficult to separate what's true and important from what's noise and speculation or even deliberate distraction. This is where Greg Miller, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, comes in. The Apprentice is a product of two years of research and reporting. It draws on hundreds of interviews, with sources ranging from members of President Trump's inner circle to senior officials in the intelligence community. It's a bit of an overused expression, but Greg's work really does connect the dots. Thoughtfully and methodically, he's pulled together key facts out of a swirl of information in order to give readers a fuller, clearer picture of Russia's interference. One thing that The Washington Post, I believe, does incredibly well, as we see in the case of this story, is collaboration across the newsroom. Across our newsroom, reporters have worked together to consistently break news about Russia's continued attempts to hack our democracy. Two reporters who have made especially important contributions to these efforts, Eileen Nakashima, Ellen Nakashima and Craig Timberg, will join Greg and The Post's Libby Casey for this morning's panel discussion. But no one takes more pride in the collaborative culture than our executive editor, Marty Barron. The Post's Russia coverage reflects the values he places on teamwork and on investigative reporting. And it's now my pleasure to turn the program over to Marty, who will set the stage for this morning's conversation. Thank you.
2: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you all for coming, for what I know will be a very lively and uh, enlightening conversation. Uh, The occasion, as you know, is the publication of The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy masterfully written by national security reporter Greg Miller, in collaboration with his colleagues on the national security, politics, business, and local staffs of The Washington Post. Two of those superb journalists, Ellen Nakashima and Craig Timberg, will join with Greg on stage today to talk about the groundbreaking reporting that led first to a Pulitzer Prize for The Washington Post earlier this year, and now have resulted in this book that pulls together the complicated threads of an extraordinary and disturbing story. The stunning intrusion of Russia into an American presidential election, with the goal of electing Donald Trump, deserved a comprehensive and comprehensible examination. This book provides it. It's a thoroughly absorbing read. Russian interference in an American election, of course, also called for deep journalistic investigation well prior to publication of any book. And The Post did that. It was first on the story, and it has stayed with it hard over the last couple of years. On June 14, 2016, a story by Allen in the Washington Post was the first to reveal that, the Russian government, that Russian government hackers had penetrated the computer networks of the Democratic National Committee. It was a clear signal, if not fully understood at the time, that the Kremlin had been targeting American political institutions. Nearly six months later, in a story also first reported by The Post, Ellen Gregg and then colleague Adam Entous wrote that the CIA had concluded in a secret assessment that Russia sought to help Donald Trump win the presidency. The Post's early breakthroughs on the Russia story meant that by the date of Donald Trump's inauguration, our reporters were already speaking to people across the government to understand the Kremlin's role in 2016 the Obama administration's response and how policy toward Russia would change with the new administration. This running start allowed us to build on post columnist David Ignatius's revelation on January 12, 2017, that Michael Flynn, then the national security advisor designate and Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak had spoken by phone in late December. In early February, Greg, Ellen, and Adam disclosed the two men had discussed U.S. sanctions against Russia, a story that compelled Flynn's resignation within a week because he had lied in declaring that no such conversation had taken place. From that point, it was on to a year and a half of additional breakthrough reporting about the nature and extent of contacts between Russians and those close to Trump Revelations that set in motion the appointment of the special counsel. Over the course of the post investigation, the reporting took many dramatic turns. Greg, for example, became privy to secrets flowing out of the Trump White House, even gaining possession of transcripts of the president's calls with world leaders. His sources enabled him to reveal that Trump had shared highly classified information with Russia's ambassador and foreign minister in a meeting in the Oval Office. Greg went to unusual links to protect sources, using code words and even the ruse of a mundane business transaction to provide a plausible explanation for their interactions, if ever detected by authorities. A year later, classified memos written by FBI Director James Comey revealed that he and Trump had discussed Greg's story and his sourcing in a chilling Oval Office exchange. We need to go after the reporters, Trump said, according to Comey's memo. And Trump suggested to Comey that, quote, 10 or 15 years ago, we put them in jail to find out what they know. Now, Comey agreed that the leaks were terrible and said he was, as he put it, eager to find leakers and would like to nail one to the door as a message. There was value, Comey said, in, quote, putting a head on a pike. So fortunately, uh, Greg's head is not on a pike, as you will plainly see. He survived to brilliantly author this book. And I'm proud to now introduce Greg, fellow reporters Ellen Nakashima and Craig Timberg, and then outstanding interviewer Libby Casey of The Washington Post, who will lead the discussion. Thank you.
3: Good morning and welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Libby Casey, politics and accountability anchor here at The Washington Post, and I'm so pleased to be on stage with three of my colleagues, Greg Miller, national security correspondent and author of The Apprentice, Ellen Nakashima, national security reporter, and Craig Timberg, national technology reporter. As Fred and Marty mentioned, this book is the culmination of years of reporting deep sourcing Uh, and today we're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at how this book came together and also very importantly where the story goes from here so if you have questions if you're in the audience or if you're watching online if you've got questions for our panelists you can send them to us via Twitter using the hashtag #PostLive, and we'll get to some of those later on in our conversation so let's just jump right in you know Craig as I was reading this book it was almost like a Shakespearean Tragedy from the perspective of the Obama administration as the election rolled forward. There were so many missed opportunities To stop the Russian interference to, to stop the hacking that was happening Can you take us through some of the biggest missed opportunities? To stop Russian interference missed opportunities either because of ignorance missed signals or pure politics.
4: Yeah, of course Can I take a quick second to say a few things uh, before we get too far along? First, I just want to thank Marty and Fred for that great introduction. I want to ask Marty whether he's, we've worked together for many years. I'm sure there have been moments when he does wish my head was on a (laughs) (laughs) Um, plane. It's our great privilege and this city's great fortune to have uh, terrific leadership like Fred and Marty and the editing and the team of editors here at the Post who really. give us the support we need, not only give us the support we need to do this sort of work, um, but ensure that this gets done in the most accurate and fair way possible. Um, In in this moment in history and journalism, there's nothing more critical than that. And I also just wanted to really thank um, Ellen and Craig for their terrific and important contributions to the reporting along the way and to the work that's in this book. Um, there's only one reporter on this planet who gets to say they wrote the very first story about Russian interference in the election and that's Ellen Nakashima who's sitting right next to me and, there, and Craig has done just valiant work in explaining to those of us for whom uh, Silicon Valley and all of these social media platforms seem so opaque at times um, their role and their culpability in what happened. So to return to your question, thank you. Oh. Sorry, no, not quite yet. I got to talk about my shoes. So <laughs> these shoes are more than 50 years old. Um, whenever I have a special day, I wear these shoes because they were my father's. Uh, and he is here today, along with my mom. They flew in from California to be here. Uh, he took great care of these shoes, and I'm trying to, uh, to take care of them as well. I just wanted to call them out and say, express my gratitude that they came here for this special day. Thank you so there were tons of missed opportunities and you're right it does seem tragic um when we look back on it and that was one of the really uh stark things things that jumped out at me when i started working on the book because we were all scrambling in real time as this story was unfolding there wasn't a lot of time for reflection until This year, when I started trying to build out timelines and detailed chronologies and seeing, you know, events overlapping with other events and seeing how things kind of fit together in a bigger picture. So, obviously, Ellen has written extensively about the first real missed opportunity, uh, and I hope that she can talk about that in a minute. She um, wrote about the Russian penetration of the DNC's computer networks and how uh, long it took for the FBI, which had detected that penetration and knew about it, to get the attention of the DNC leadership, for the DNC leadership and for its, its um, cybersecurity teams to understand the significance of what was happening and to take the measures which, if they'd taken in time, might have prevented a lot of damage from happening many months later. Um, but there were other moments along the way, and one that jumps out for me is the, um, you know, the Obama administration really struggled to figure out how to respond to this attack by Russia during the election. Uh, President Obama was really concerned about not being perceived as interfering in the election, not putting his thumb on the scale. He often said, um, and that meant that. They really tried to get bipartisan statements from Congress to call attention to what was happening, to call out Vladimir Putin, to call out Russian intelligence services and and explain to the public uh, what was happening. And, you know, Republican leadership resisted that um, on all fronts. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refused to go along with any kind of bipartisan statement until very late in the game, and even then it was really watered down and made no reference to what Russia at all... Uh, Others um, um, went even farther in trying to prevent um, this from becoming an issue that the government could talk to the public about in in time. Um, And, you know, even after the election, there were, you know, we are still, right now, one of the most baffling um, aspects of all of this is that here we are, well over a year and a half later, and, um, and the president continues to describe this all as a hoax, all as fake news. He's convened a single NSC meeting on Russian election interference. It lasted for, as far as we can tell, about 45 minutes. No decisions were made. He, he picked up immediately after that and went golfing. It's just not, I mean, this was a huge, huge thing. This is why we did this book. It's a critical moment in our country's history. An adversary interfered in our election and had an enormous impact, an impact even greater than they expected. Uh, And because the president refuses to acknowledge even that that occurred, it's really impaired our ability to respond and shore up the defenses that we need to to prevent it from happening again.
3: Let's bring Ellen and Craig into the conversation. Uh, Ellen, the DNC hack was noticed by the FBI. They contacted essentially the tech team of the DNC and tried to liaise with them. What do you see looking back? And, and as you reported this story, was this, was this ignorance? Is this our national collective ignorance of how hacking can be so intrusive and how vulnerable we are? Um, the RNC was hacked as well, something right. that Republicans have downplayed, but their information was not weaponized, so to speak. So the DNC wasn't, wasn't necessarily unique That's in right. the intrusion. Yes. Um, and first, I too would like to thank
5: you all for being here and thank uh, Marty Varon for all his wonderful support and leadership uh, over the past years, which has enabled us to do this, uh, this work, which is dependent so much on, on an awesome team. And to thank Greg, um, most of all, for being such a wonderful colleague. And uh, you really are unique in the way you're able to synthesize the masses of information. We're all pulling in day after day and kind of step back and and sort through it and put it into a very compelling, revealing uh, narrative and read. So I urge everyone to, to get the book and uh, get it signed. <laughs> um, to get back to your question, Libby. Um, so yes, in fact, I, I should explain that uh, when, when it comes to computer hacks, uh, of, of political systems, of government systems, of um, company systems. These have been going on for decades now, and, and especially in the last 10, 15 years. Big nations like Russia and China have really been hacking with a vengeance. But much of it, the vast majority of it, has been for what we just call straight espionage purposes, political espionage to figure out what uh, our government Agencies are working on what their secret plans are, what the officials are thinking for corporate secrets, for you know intellectual property on on paint and and uh, grass seed. What the Russians did in actually starting 2015 and 2016 here was was different, and I can't say that you know. People cannot be blamed now, in hindsight, for not anticipating, because no one did, anticipating that the Russians would hack into, uh, in this case, the Democratic National Committee system, steal masses of information, and then dump it out onto the Internet, in this case through WikiLeaks, effectively weaponizing this information. That was not something uh, that people really expected to happen. So when the FBI first uh, detected, because they were informed by the NSA, that the Russians had gotten into the DNC system, um, I think they were told sometime in the summer of 2015, they actually did make attempts to contact the DNC as they would any other uh, victim that they'd gotten this information on. Their initial efforts were were not very successful at getting in touch with a person who could uh, actually do something about it or raise it up to the higher levels of DNC leadership. And with through a series of of miscommunications and miscues, one of the, um, the IT people that the FBI agent did get in touch with was very skeptical that this was even the FBI. And, and it took months for the two to actually finally meet and ascertain that the FBI agent was who he really was and that this IT person could trust him. That took months and by the time the IT official really started to try to move things up, uh, it, it, it was too late. And in fact, uh, one could say that this, there were also sort of miscommunications at mid-levels within the DNC where a person who should have and could have raised it to the executive director inexplicably failed to do so. Now, you could say, why didn't the DNC or why didn't the FBI just go straight to the top and go to the executive director or the chairwoman and say, hey, you know, you've been hacked by the Russians? Well, that's something they might have and could have done. But in in this case, they thought that they were doing the right thing by just going to the uh, to, to try to get through the IT staff. And so months went by. The. Leadership of the DNC didn't know about it, and then another Russian spy agency hacked in in the spring of 2016. And I think this was the hack that was the most consequential. This was the military spy agency, the GRU, that got into the DNC sometime in maybe April of 2016. And it was their hack that I think eventually led to the material that was dumped out in July on WikiLeaks. And by that point, it it was too late, the DNC finally did hear about it, the leadership heard about it. They hired a company called CrowdStrike to investigate and to try to kick the intruders out. But by then it was too late. The Russians had taken masses and masses of, of, of emails and communications and opposition research from the DNC and were starting to already assemble it to be put out online. And so that was uh, one of the sort of Technical, tactical missed opportunities. And then, as Greg said, there were much more sort of strategic-level missed opportunities that I think were actually uh, far more significant. Like what? Give some of those. Well, for instance, there were people, uh, I would say, inside the Obama administration who were starting to see signs of Russia's growing aggression uh, and use of disinformation and manipulation of social media against, for instance, Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine, in the invasion of Crimea in 2014, moving into 2015, they saw this going on in Eastern Europe and in Europe. They, they didn't see it, anticipate it happening in the U.S., but they knew that Russia was becoming increasingly aggressive in this front, in what we call maybe active measures or hybrid warfare. There were there were some growing attempts to, inside the administration to try to become more aggressive against Russia. But at that time, a lot of the, the focus was still on counterterrorism, on ISIS, and not thinking about uh, uh, sort of deterring Russia in, in its efforts to undermine Western-style democracy. But then when, in 2016, the FBI noticed and saw and knew that Russia had hacked into the DNC... And as soon as they saw that Russia had weaponized this information in July of 2016, on the eve of the Democratic Convention, this was now you know, full-on uh, attack, an information warfare operation against the United States and U.S. democracy. And there was heated debate within the Obama administration. We reported that out uh, last year. There were, as, as Greg mentioned, uh, there were there was a reluctance on the part of the president himself and his senior advisors to take any public action to call out Russia to impose um, meaningful forceful sanctions or deterrence in an, in the out of the belief or fear that that could uh, be seen as the Democrats the Obama administration trying to influence the election in favor of Hillary Clinton There were fears that it might escalate and provoke an even greater, stronger Russia response. There were fears that it might do the Russians' work for them and cast doubt on the integrity of the election. For all those reasons, despite some of the uh, arguments made at mid-levels and lower levels of the administration interagency, the the Obama administration didn't take forceful action until after the election. And even
3: the measures it took, some say, are just not strong enough. You report that they did use the red phone system, which Mm -hmm. of course we all know about, on October 31st, so really on the eve of the election, to send a warning to say, essentially back off, don't meddle. Meddling in the election would represent serious interference in the fundamentals of U.S. society. The Russians acknowledge they received the message, although, Greg, you report that they, didn't, uh, they weren't very fulsome in their response. Um, and you report that that may have prevented, the Obama administration believes, a more direct cyber attack on Election Day.
4: Yeah, you have sort of two uh, views about this among the uh, senior Obama administration officials. We spoke to many of those officials when we were reporting the stories out over the past year and a half, and and there was a quote we used in one of our stories that got a lot of attention from a pretty senior person who said that when he looked back at this time, he felt like we sort of choked, he used the word choked, in how they handled Russia. And and even afterward, you've seen this second guessing. Former director of national intelligence, Jim Clapper, has a great line in his book where he talks about, he marvels at the fact at how reluctant Obama was to put his thumb on the scale in the election. And here's Putin over here on the other end of the scale standing on it and jumping up and down on it. You know, um, But the, many of the senior Obama administration officials, including Dennis McDonough, would say they believe that their warnings to Russia succeeded in one way, that they, that they scared Russia away from launching any kind of cyber attacks on election day that could have been a nightmare, right? The disabling voting systems around the country, creating chaos as, as the nation tried to vote. That really didn't happen. Uh, And and they would argue that that is largely because of the warnings that they issued.
3: Although you also point out that the US's antiquated and disorganized voting system may have been a benefit in this case because it's hard to hack an entire system if it's disorganized and in disparate pieces. Craig, I want to bring you in and talk to us about the role of the social media companies because the book points out that it, it almost becomes this very successful loop. The Russians hack, they release material, and then they use social media as a way to highlight that material, flag it, point out the most embarrassing details, as well as, of course, as we now know, propagate things that weren't true and drum up the problems and the, and the, the passions that were already happening in this country.
6: Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'd like to also <laughs> echo the comments of Greg and Ellen about... Uh, what a great place this is to work. Uh, I just passed my uh, 20th anniversary at The Post. I've lived through good times and hard times, and this newsroom and this institution has never been better led, uh, and it's, thank God, because <laughs> we really need great journalism now, and I'm very pleased to work with uh, folks. And though I missed the um, memo to bring my awesome heritage shoes, um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I am very proud to be here with, with two of my favorite colleagues. Uh, on the, I feel like one of the themes that comes up a lot as we reflect back on the Russia st- stuff, is, is there was a really a, a failure to quickly apprehend what the heck was going on. And there was a kind of a failure of imagination. And I, I think, in a way, we had a failure of imagination as well. Like, living through this in real time, nobody really quickly figured out what was going on. And that's true of the social media companies as well. I mean, the, you know, I've written out very critically about Facebook and Twitter and Google and how some of this stuff has played out. But what, the same sort of, like, questions about the way the system was what the russians were doing and what to do about it were were going through silicon valley in the exact same time like because they were arrayed against a certain kind of threat hackers right or uh, they didn't imagine that the russians on a wholesale basis were basically going to take this massive incredibly lucrative social media system and turn it against the country that created it and so uh, that failure of imagination made them slow it made them tentative. Uh, They also, of course, had huge business interests in appearing very even-handed, not wanting to be perceived as having the thumb on the scale uh, in favor of one side or another. All of those same things played out with these companies, and they all led to a response that, frankly, everyone in Silicon Valley now really regrets. And there's these amazing anecdotes of election night in in Silicon Valley and the next day. And there's just like, people couldn't believe it. People were shocked. And... There was a particular blowback within the walls of Facebook where people just, it dawned on everybody pretty quickly that they had a role in a disaster. Now, who knows if it was a deci- decisive kind of role, but, man, the, this system got turned against us. And I don't think anybody really saw it coming, though, as Ellen argues, it probably should have because of what happened in Ukraine and some of the other places. But I really don't think people saw it coming
3: i want to talk about politics for a moment and and this is so relevant now to this day still because uh, we're talking about the the lead up to the election uh largely this book spans through I don't know, Greg, it's like you published it a minute ago. It goes all the way through the Helsinki summit. Um, So I want to talk about the presidency, but this political threat is very important because as the Republicans rejected the appeals, not by the White House, the Obama White House, but by the intelligence community and intelligence leaders to make a statement to do something to fight back against the Russians, they just, they shut it down. And you write, Greg, that Putin had weaponized intelligence, McConnell and the GOP had weaponized denial.
4: Yeah, there's a scene in the book... um that is new um, that describes a confrontation between the CIA director John Brennan and the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in the, in the fall of 2016 as the election is approaching. Uh, Brennan had spent, uh, the CIA had gotten some amazing intelligence, breakthrough intelligence we laid out in the book uh, in the late July timeframe. Brennan spent two days sequestered in his office. He was so alarmed by this, he closes, every, he closes the door, doesn't let anybody in, and he spends two days in his office just pouring over all of the intel on Russia that the agency has. He comes out of it just sort of stricken, uh, calls the White House, I need to see the president right away, goes to the White House, tells Obama what's happening. The first thing they do is try to set up a series of one-on-one meetings with congressional leaders for Brennan so that he can tell them the same thing he's told the president. That's pretty unusual. Uh, The CIA director usually meets with groups of lawmakers, doesn't do these one-on-one briefings. So it's really indicative of the level of alarm. He's just astonished that when he gets to McConnell and they have their meeting, and he starts to lay out all of this intelligence that shows that Putin has actually approved this operation himself uh, and is leading toward the idea of we need to call this out, we need to do something about this. McConnell argues that, no, it sounds like you're trying to meddle in the election and not Russia. Uh, He says uh, that he is not prepared to call out Putin, but would be prepared to call out Obama and Brennan and the Obama administration for meddling in the election if they tried to do anything like this. Um, It's just one of many moments in this book, and it's part of a broader theme that speaks to, as you were saying, the sort of political forces we're dealing with in this country at this moment. It wasn't always like this, right? It's there just time after time where partisan impulses just overwhelm everything, overwhelm concern for the country. In this case, overwhelm concern for one of the most precious mechanisms of American democracy, a presidential election. What is more sacred than that? And there was an utter inability to get any agreement to have any bipartisan condemnation of what Russia was doing,
5: Ellen? You're nodding your head. Yeah, um, I think Greg, you put your, your finger on it, on it right there um, because what Russia, in fact, exploited was this particular moment in in time in our country where we are so deeply divided and polarized along political lines and sometimes in religious lines, social economic lines. Our ground was fertile. We were susceptible to uh, Russian interference because of, the, of those divisions. Russia was able to exploit them. They didn't create the divisions. The, the, the scene you just vividly laid out, it just encapsulates that. And, and as Craig, Craig could probably explain too, It's not just the Russians that exploited all of this. We have internal domestic actors that that put out divisive messages from the left, from the right. And Russia amplified those messages and sometimes it, 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 it amplified them and impersonated those messages better than the groups themselves. Um, there was like, I think, one Black Lives Matter, Black activists group that sort of took on the Black Lives Matters themes and put up a fake page on Facebook that got way more likes and shares than the actual Black Lives Matters page. But this was all happening in the same moment in 2016. We had internal political turmoil and Russia just swooped in and, and brilliantly exploited that.
6: And if I can um, expand on that just for a second. You know, people wonder, well, you know, hasn't propaganda always been out there? Hasn't uh, active measures you know, been part of our relationship with the Russians and the Soviets for you know, a century? But there is something very particular that happened in 2016 that actually couldn't have happened much sooner, and that is the Russians were able to identify particular groups and send them individualized messages. So it isn't like I was getting messages You know they were they were aimed at you know a young african-american man in oakland right but he was getting those messages right i was getting messages aimed at you know boring middle-aged white people in washington and so like the the ability to the the social media companies um have atomized all of us they've identified us they've, they've they've put us into a thousand different buckets and they've given the ability to aim a particular message at those individual buckets and really at all of us individually to advertisers well guess who advertised the russians advertised they they they, and they paid in rubles <laughs> and uh so the the ability so we we meaning the country built this unbelievable completely unprecedented system to in a in an atomized way target individual voters that has never ever happened before and the Russians did it. And so that's one reason why it was, everybody was so slow to perceive what was going on on the social media front, because everyone was getting different messages. And it was slipping in between our news feed messages about, like, you know, Aunt Mary's, you know, tuna casserole or, you know, my brother's new kid or whatever. All that stuff just flowed into these feeds. And they managed to, they managed to deliver it in a way that absolutely confirmed people's pre-existing ideas about what was going on, and that meant if you were a huge Bernie Sanders supporter, you were getting messages that said Bernie Sanders was great and Hillary Clinton was a crook. If you were a huge Donald Trump supporter, Donald Trump is great, Hillary Clinton's crook. So there was a consistent message about Clinton, but in every other way, it was targeted in a really, really particular way, and if you were a Clinton supporter, you probably were getting a message that you shouldn't bother to vote, particularly if you were African American. People have not really keyed in on how much the suppression efforts where it's serious and rich, and it's not like that's never happened before, but to have another country target a core Democratic Party group and tell them not to vote in a, in a way that was completely secretive and and, and and sneaky, it's just never happened before.
3: I wanna remind you, you can ask your questions by using the hashtag post live, send them in, and we'll re- read some to our panelists. I want to jump into uh, Michael Flynn's tenure in the White House, and and this seems pivotal because this was a key moment for you as reporters to break through the denials of the Trump administration and run with a story, even as you were getting no's, 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 denials, denials. And that must have been kind of a nail biter for you guys, Mm -hmm. despite having a lot of sources. President Obama warned President-elect Trump, um, don't hire Michael Flynn. He did anyway. Why is that such a pivotal moment? Why is it such a pivotal character as you reflect, even a couple years later, on his very brief tenure in the White House?
4: Uh, I'd tell you a couple things about that. I mean, Flynn uh, became the national security advisor for Donald Trump. He ignored Obama's advice. Uh, Flynn had been essentially fired as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency under the Obama administration. And he was so embittered by that that he became this really strident, Um, partisan against the Democrats in a way that made even a lot of his peers in the military, this is a guy who had a very highly decorated career in the the Army um, for decades, Um, and, and his behavior after his termination was really troubling to a lot of his friends. He latches onto Trump, he becomes this uh, figure who's uh, showing up and rallying the base at lots of, um, of Trump's political appearances and things like that. But I think the significance of this is that so once he becomes national security advisor, the designated national security advisor in the Trump administration before it's even in office, I mean, it's just such an important job. He becomes, you know, you have all of this crazy interaction between people close to Trump and Russia, throughout the campaign. Paul Manafort, you have these sort of second-tier characters who are like Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, who are on the Trump campaign, who are having weird interactions with Russian individuals. But here's Michael Flynn, decorated three-star Army general, who he also has had these troubling interactions with Russia. And he is the one who sort of executes what, to this point, still looks like the closest we've seen to a kind of a quid pro quo. Um, One of the looming questions over all of this is what has Russia gotten out of it? Well, Russia really wanted a lot of things. They wanted sanctions to be lifted, for starters. And Michael Flynn is telling Russia in late December, we got you covered, basically. Sit tight. Once we're in office, we're going to review all of this stuff. Don't worry about it. We're going to take care of you. Um, The book really details. I mean, this was a huge story for Ellen, myself, and our former colleague, Adamentis, who was a terrific reporter and who was responsible for a lot of these stories that we broke on Russia uh, and Trump. Uh, and, the story, and, the, and in the book, we we unpack this. And, and, and there are new scenes in the book about when the FBI comes to visit Flynn to interview him in the West Wing, in the White House. Lawyers at the NSC learn about it late run down to his office, try to cut off the interview. They get there too late. Flynn is coming out of his office. He's already patting these FBI agents on the back. He's already taken a fatal step that's going to lead to a criminal conviction in that very moment.
3: Initially, he denied that he discussed sanctions at all with the Russian ambassador. And you had nine sources? Is that the point where you had nine sources on this story? Yeah,
4: right. right. Um, and
3: so you and your editors had to make the call of whether to go forward with the story when you were getting a very strong denial. Uh,
4: yeah, this was one of the, so one of the things we do in the book too is we turn the camera back on ourselves. So we, we look inside the newsroom at some of the, the key moments in this, and this is one of them. So we Adam, Alan, and I had been working on this story about Flynn for weeks, struggled to gain traction. Adam got a breakthrough with one source. Then we started to get other breakthroughs. That told us that made it clear Flynn was not telling the truth about his interaction with the Russian ambassador. He was lying about that, uh, and um, we had another colleague, Karen DeYoung, who was, had a previously scheduled interview with Flynn. She was going over to the White House on a Friday night, to t- or a th- Thursday night, perhaps, to talk to him just about the, his foreign policy objectives in the Trump administration. And we knew that she was going. And we asked her. Wait till the end of the interview, but then ask, tell him, ask him one more time, did he talk sanctions with the Russian ambassador? And tell him, we have sources saying he did, and we're getting ready to run a story along those lines. He says to her, no, no, no. She comes back to the, to the post. We put the story on hold because his, his no was so categorical it sort of caught us off guard. Um, and we wanted to, and you know, this is, these are these really high-stake moments where you're happy to have uh, leadership like Marty um, and Cameron Barr, the managing editor, and Peter Finn. We waited that night. We regrouped. Had a meeting the next day in Marty's office. We talked about it. Marty decides, evaluates our sourcing. We decide we're going to publish anyway. We'll use Flynn's denial. We need to call him to tell him that. So I call the White House saying, we're going forward with the story. We're going to use them, him denying it. They say, okay, wait a minute. We need to modify his statement. (laughs) Flynn now cannot be sure that he didn't raise the subject of sanctions. He doesn't recall whether he discussed sanctions. It was just one of those moments where you just knew you finally had it. Uh, it, 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 His whole, this lie that had been presented to the American public, it involved the the incoming vice president of the United States. It involved the, uh, the, the, The White House spokesman crumbled in that instant.
3: Bill on Twitter is asking, what, if anything, did Vice President Pence know about Russian interference in the run-up, especially to the election day?
4: Anybody else have?
6: Ellen?
3: Ellen. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry, what did he know about Russian interference in the run-up to the election? Bill's asking specifically about run-up to the election, but we can also broaden that to what happened during the transition. Um, And then what happened in the aftermath? Do we know, do we have a clear sight on the vice president's knowledge and information flow?
4: I will take a quick crack at it. I think that there's a lot of indication, especially during that time frame leading up to the election, he was not even necessarily in Trump's inner circle, right? He's not in the Trump Tower meeting. Um, He is sort of on the outside looking in on a lot of their discussions. Um, I haven't really seen any indication, I have to say, that he was... um, um, really, particularly aware of all of these troubling interactions that involve Manafort, Paige, Papadopoulos. I mean.
3: He vouched for Flynn.
4: He does he vouch for Flynn. That becomes really important. Mm-hmm. He goes on the Sunday shows and attributes it to Flynn. He's very careful and says, I spoke with Mike Flynn. He told me that this was absolutely not true, that he had discussed sanctions with the Russian ambassador. That's one of the reasons that Flynn gets fired, because he lied to the vice president.
5: And that's one of the key reasons that Sally Yates, who became the acting attorney general, got so concerned uh, about Flynn's potential for being compromised by the Russians, and took it upon herself. She went to uh, the White House, to the White House counsel, Don McGahn, to warn him that Flynn, by by telling, by misleading Pence and having Pence go out on the Sunday show and say this publicly to America that uh, that Flynn had not spoken about sanctions with Kislyak, when Flynn knew that to be true, and when most importantly Russia knew they had spoken about sanctions, that this opened Flynn up to potential compromise by the Russians, and that's just not a good situation for the government to be in, and she felt. She felt that she should warn the White House, McGahn, about this. Mm -hmm. And so she did, right after uh, Flynn had been interviewed by the FBI.
3: So many of the moments where President Trump interacts with the Russians are are done in plain sight on the campaign trail. You know, go ahead, look into Hillary's emails. um, Holding a meeting uh, with top Russian leaders, with, I believe, the ambassador, Um, which of course a Russian photographer captures, even though American photographers are not allowed in for that typical pool spray, but a Russian photographer captures it. Uh, And other interactions that he has that are happening before all of our eyes, are we almost missing it or missing something because it's it's so obvious?
4: That's one of the themes of the book. Um, And it is an interesting kind of intellectual exercise to think about what if... What we've seen Trump do as president and as a presidential candidate had occurred in secret, right? What if instead of at a campaign event where he says, Russia, if you're listening, can you go looking for those Hillary emails? What if, in fact, we had learned months later that he had sent in an an encrypted communication to the Kremlin saying, Russia, can you look into these emails for me? We would just have such a different picture of this, right? It is staring at it. A lot of it, a lot of the uh, collusion is one of the words that gets thrown around, does stare at us right in the face, right? It is his praise, his odd, inexplicable admiration for Putin. It is his language on the campaign trail. It is his effort, and throughout his presidency so far, to impede any policy or plan internally by the U.S. government that would inflict any pain on Russia for what it's done. I mean, we have a completely schizophrenic administration in this way. In this, I want to. We've been talking about the 2016 election a lot, but I want to make sure people understand that the book starts there, but it carries deep right up through the present moment with the Trump presidency and the Mueller investigation, uh, and it just has is loaded with example after example of. Trump's efforts to protect Russia from any consequence for what happened.
6: Yeah, I just wanna jump in and not only does the book go right up to the present moment, everything we wrote about with the social media manipulation goes up to the present moment on Facebook and Twitter and some of the other companies took down a bunch of these obviously Russian accounts, but all of the intel we've gotten both from government officials and from kind of independent researchers, and actually the companies themselves, to be fair, is that the, the Russians are doing the same thing. They've gotten better at it. They're not paying in rubles anymore. They're using VPN, so that doesn't pop up as in a square in St. Petersburg as the origin of these things. But there is every reason to believe that uh, that something very much like what happened in 2016 is happening in 2018. Uh, we probably won't know about it until afterwards, in the same way we didn't know about this until afterwards, because. So far as I can tell, um, nobody has a handle on this. The US government does not have a handle on this. The tech companies are definitely trying harder and have done some things, but it's not at all clear that they have a handle on this. And so in a way, really the only meaningful response that's happened on that front is that we all kind of understand it a little better. Mm-hmm. So when you see something in your Facebook feed or on Twitter or on Reddit that, the, that totally verifies exactly what you already think, be skeptical because mm-hmm. it, be, it could have been written by a Russian.
3: You're getting asked in interviews, OK, was there collusion? Is there going to be a, a, you know, a, a mega indictment from, someone, from tr- of someone in Trump's family or in the, in the inner sphere? Um, I'm not going to ask you that question. <laughs> <like>. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was warned by Bob Woodward himself not to look into a crystal ball. But I do want you to talk about sort of the value of the reporting, even if you can't necessarily answer that question. And why is that a hard question to answer? Are, are you all really the appropriate people to be answering that question? Well, I think Bob Mueller is the pers- best person to ask, first
5: of all. And, uh, you know, I think Adam Schiff, who's the uh, Democratic leader of the House Intelligence Committee, said before that, you know, there's there's evidence of, of collusion or conspiracy, but whether that evidence rises to sort of the degree of um, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that, you know, could stand up in court to get a criminal conviction is is another question, and that's a question I think only Bob Mueller can answer. But, you know, certainly things like uh, Trump just saying publicly, uh, Russia, if you're listening, you know, please go hack uh, Hillary and find those e- missing emails. I mean, that's, in in a sense, asking Russia to to help uh, his campaign. And, and foreign... Uh, assistance to a political campaign is, I believe, is not, it's not legal.
4: And we now know from Mueller, because of his work, that Russia was listening, and within hours it launched spearfishing attacks against...
6: Was that coincidence? Also, which is also illegal, right? Hacking is illegal. So he was, he was encouraging a foreign power to commit multiple illegal acts against his, his rival.
3: Do you see evidence of changes uh, in Trump's behavior during the presidency itself in terms of lessons learned from any of this?
6: <laughs> Greg
4: okay. uh, I think that I gotta be delicate here but I but you know there's not a lot of evidence of um, so we say growth <laughs> um, you know the the book opens with his his visit to CIA headquarters on the second day in office Uh, which was disastrous. He gives this self-aggrandizing speech in front of this sacred uh, memorial wall at the CIA, which just dismays everybody at the agency, so much, though, that after he leaves, people the rest of that week are laying bouquets of flowers on the floor where Trump had stood. Um, I, I am convinced that he's perfectly capable of delivering that same speech right now if he were to go back to CIA. Uh, he delivers a similar speech every every other day. I mean, he did, he gave one last night in which he was attacking attacking Dr. Ford. Um, he, as far as we can tell, um, he is not um, paying very close attention to his intelligence briefings. He's not reading the daily PDB, the 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 intelligence uh, paper that's prepared every day for the president. Um, he is um, does not appear to have. Despite all of these many months he has now had to spend with some of the world's best analysts on Russia and China uh, and other countries and other issues, his views don't seem to have changed much about Putin, the Kremlin, their objectives, the threat they pose, um, and how those run counter to our own. So I just think it's hard to see a whole lot of evidence of. of any kind of shift in position or, or a deeper appreciation for the complexities of the world.
3: Were there questions you wanted to answer through writing this book?
4: Um, yeah. I mean, for me, the, the book was really about trying to, trying to put together for readers something that would enable all of us, including myself, to understand this crazy moment in history that we're, and consequential moment in history that we're living through. Uh, and I think a lot of the value is in just laying it all out and in telling it in a narrative sequentially, understanding one event, you know, as it happens in relation to others, as opposed to the way we were reporting it at the time, which was just sort of, it was just overwhelming, right? Things, are, a big breaking story this week, and then something happens two months later, you don't necessarily see the connection. But when you lay it all out, you do see those connections. Um, but I also wanted this to be a really richly told story, and there are. There are, we went back over a lot of the stories we'd told in the newspaper to build out them as almost in almost cinematic way and describe things that are happening inside the White House, inside the West Wing, inside the CIA, and to as much extent as possible inside the Mueller investigation.
3: Ellen, there's a passage in the book that tells the story of you getting a manila envelope <laughs> mailed here to the Washington Post with some hot tips in it, uh, truly anonymous, and Greg, you of course explained that usually anonymous sources are people, reporters know who they are, the reader may not know, but the reporter and editor knows, but in this case, you didn't know who it was from, yeah. and, it, and it's very dramatic, and it almost feels sort of like the, like this classic moment for all of you where sources are reaching out to you in whatever way they can. I'd, I'd love for you all to talk a little bit about how important sources are right now and how sometimes a statement made by someone from the president's team can motivate sources to reach out and say, I, "I know that's not what happened. I know that's not true." And in a sense, they, they they push people from the inside to reach out. So, Ellen, tell us about what was in the in the Manila envelope you got, and this is in December 2016, December. so post election but before President Trump takes office. Right, sort of an early Christmas present. Um, had walked down to
5: the uh, the post mail room, um, the basement of the building, and just collected uh, the. The mail that accumulates, and flyers, books, and then there was this one manila envelope that um, I thought would probably just have some public relations flyer that I would throw out, but um, it looked, it didn't have a return address, and it had a, um, a sort of, an, it was like a postmark that was very vague, and I think Greg, Greg mentioned, it was like a little Charlie Brown Christmas stamp in the corner, and it was, um, Actually, it was, it was to me and to a colleague, Josh Rogan, here at the, at the Post. And it was a single-space typed letter, uh, no, no signature, no name, and it claimed to be from someone inside the transition who was very concerned about what he was seeing or they were seeing or hearing. Um,
4: inside Trump Tower?
5: Inside Trump Tower, in particular, mentioning um, a, a, me- a meeting. Oh, they gave the date too, as I believe, which started us. Um, I, sh- I showed it to Greg. I said, "Look at look at this. Uh, this person claims that that there were uh, meetings w- with senior transition officials, talking about wanting to have some sort of uh, secret communications channel with with the Kremlin and the Trump organization." and we were, we were stunned uh, and intrigued, and we started reporting out. I think that's part one of the things that started us on the road to. Um, like there was the story about the meeting in the Seychelles uh, with Eric Prince, and what turned out to be a Russian oligarch. Uh, and there was a story that I did and uh, and Adam about a secret communications channel that um, Jared Kushner, uh, Trump's son-in-law, wanted to have set up in a Russian embassy so that uh, so that um, Flynn could communicate with, with Russian generals uh, as a result of the letter. In fact, in the end, the writer never revealed themselves, never came forward. But it was in- indicative of, I think, a, a degree of concern that was going on inside the administration, inside the tr- uh, transition, which carries through, I think, to this day, and which is how uh, a number of us and our colleagues have gotten st- tips on stories.
6: It's worth noting, I mean, the whole idea of anonymous sources, you know, people that sort of push back on it periodically. Oh, how could they be talking to people? Everyone should talk publicly. Like, I don't know. There's lots of sensitive stuff in the world. People have jobs, they have families, they have responsibilities. (laughs) And I will just tell you, if it weren't for people who talk to us without our using their names in the newspaper, we wouldn't know any of this. I don't think there'd be a special counsel investigation. I don't think, I mean, and so to the extent you're glad that things the government doesn't want you to know come out, thank an anonymous source every day because without them, we don't know anything because what what people say officially, you know, those are press releases. Our job is to get the unofficial, the truth, the thing that the powerful people don't want us to know and don't want you to know. If people don't come forward and work with us, we can't do that.
5: I also want to say that we do we vet the information very carefully and rigorously, despite tremendous pressures to to get the story and get it out first and, and, and beat everyone on the competition. The story about uh, Mike Flynn and Kislyak that had nine sources. I mean, we, we, we wanted to and made, had to make sure that we had the story right before we would print something that explosive. And that, again, is a testament to your reporting.
4: In- and even Far that east, right? even that letter that you got, I mean, mm-hmm. that never ends up really being a source by in our definition of the word. It's right? more like it's, a tip sheet. It's a tip sheet. It's a roadmap for lots of stories. A lot of it panned out, but you never, we never relied on that for anything that we ever published uh, because we don't know who that person is. We still don't.
3: Do you find that sources come to you sometimes out of frustration when they read the official account or they read sort of what the line, you're all not in your head, okay. Yeah. Absolutely.
4: There's a lot of motivations for sources. Um, not all of them are pure um, um, motivations, um, and sometimes that is something you have to take into account, but mostly it's we're evaluating whether their information is good um, more than whether their motivations are always good. Sometimes they're motivated by um, pride um, and other things. But yes, in this case, in this moment, you know, a lot of it is coming because of c- deep concern profound concern in some cases from things that they are witnessing from inside institutions and agencies that they care about deeply.
3: We're about out of time, but I wanna have each of you talk to us about what questions you're asking now, Um, without tipping your hand too much as to what stories you might be working on, but what questions should we all be asking as we head into this midterm election and as we uh, head into the midterm of the presidency?
6: Why don't you start, Craig? I mean, the the question that's on our mind is, what are the Russians and other powers uh, doing now? And does anyone have a handle on it? Is anyone doing anything that's truly effective at keeping this kind of thing from happening again? I have not yet gotten a satisfactory answer to any of those questions mm-hmm. from anybody I talked to.
5: Yes, uh, exactly. It's sort of what, what is... What is Russia up to? What is Also, what is China up to uh, and, and, and other countries, but Russia and China in particular, I think, are the two big strategic threats that we need to be worried about and need to be focused on. And what is this administration doing now and what is it planning to do in the future uh, to detect and counter and deter the, uh,
3: the malign actions of both uh, Russia and China, not to mention North Korea. Ellen, brief follow-up: Have other countries taken a signal that there's not a lot of repercussion uh, if you interfere? Now, there have been sanctions. I mean, the question about what pro- a President Trump might be able to promise versus deliver on are two very different things. There have been sanctions um, on
5: on Russia, and uh, for instance, the sanctions on a number of companies and Russian companies and oligarchs uh, were, were maybe among the most impactful. Uh, at one point, even causing one. Uh, uh, russian company aluminum company linked to the oligarch Oleg Deripaska, to to like have its share stock, uh price plummet uh so much so that i think the the treasury department is maybe easing off off on it a bit um, but generally speaking these these sanctions uh are more are a little more symbolic as opposed to having true uh pain or, or cost uh impacts on russia because russia even more so than I think China is able to withstand great uh, amounts of pain uh, in, in, its, in its country and economy. And, and Putin sort of, you know, just gonna gut it out. And he, he doesn't think that these, uh, you know, th- these sanctions are really gonna at this point um, crater his, his economy. And until there are more forceful sanctions that will in fact maybe cause some pain to, to us and our allies, uh, I don't know that anything will
3: change Putin's behavior. Greg, questions you're asking.
4: Can I take a step yeah, sure. So mm-hmm. I think that um, I think about some questions that I, I'm not sure we can answer, um, and that are about you know where does this where does this moment in our in our this political moment lead for us this sort of extraordinarily polarized moment in our political history? Where does this take us as a country? Is this um, is this like sort of a spasm um, that we snap back from, and we somehow recover what we used to think of as an equilibrium, Um, or are we into a new era, um, some sort of new era of dysfunction, hyperpartisan dysfunction, that we're going to have to figure out a way to adapt to going forward? I mean, and and also just sort of how much. Um, every institution almost in Washington now, every agency is under just an enormous stress test, right, in this Trump administration the Justice Department perhaps most of all. How do they respond? How much damage can they sustain before it becomes too much? Uh, How much can they be discredited? How much can they be vilified by the president before their reputational damage becomes too much burden to carry for them to be able to function the way we need them to function in our democracy? Um, and then I just think there are these societal divisions that are I, uh, I wonder how we heal. Um, and if you'll let me, there's just one tiny little anecdote I'll, I'll share that I use in the epilogue in the book that really was touching to me. And I, it has to do with John Dowd, who was the president's lawyer. Um, he is um, a big Trump fan, a big Trump supporter. Uh, he is also a devoted father to five children, grown children at least three of whom are mixed race. So he has mixed-race grandchildren. And there's a scene I write about in the book where he comes out of a meeting with Trump at the White House. He's had lunch with Trump. He goes back home to his house in Virginia. And the kids, the grandkids, are swimming in the pool. And he climbs into the pool with them. And they're splashing around. And the kids are like asking him questions. They're pretty impressed that he's now the president's lawyer. And they're asking him, what's it like? What's he like? Oh my gosh, how cool this is. Uh, but one of his granddaughters asks him, um, Grandpa, does the president know about us? And he says, oh, yeah, he knows that I have a big family. And she asks him again because she underst- he, he hasn't grasped what she's trying to get at. No, I mean, does he know about us? Does he know, in other words, that our skin isn't white? And... Uh, DOWD turns this into a story that he intends to make Trump look good because his grandkids then write a letter to the president and he scrawls his signature and then sends it back to them and what a great guy Trump is. But to me, it just sort of showed that here's somebody, a member of the president's lawyer's own family who is feeling vulnerable in this moment, suddenly feeling unsure about her place in this country. And I don't know where where that takes us, but the fact that it can reach reach down into a 10-year-old girl uh, is troubling.
3: Thank you all so much for talking with us today. Um, Greg Miller, Ellen Nakashima, Craig Timberg, thank you. Thank you all for being here. If you'd like to catch highlights of this, you can go to WashingtonPostLive.com. We'll have those later on today. And uh, I'd like to let you know that The Apprentice will be on sale. Greg can sign copies. Right back in the lobby after this. And The Apprentice is now out and online. The Apprentice Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Thank you so much, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.